issues. Um, is the Bible really true? Now, we're just starting a little series on how we enjoy God's life. How do we draw down the life of heaven? And the Bible is a really important part of that. But a question arises, is it really true? Is this on? There we go. We're probably about five slides on now because I've clicked it about five times. But you just did that. You just did that, didn't you? It's not working at all, is it? No. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, unsurprisingly, what I want to talk about this morning is not, oh, dearie me, I've had a crisis of faith and I don't know if it is, um, but rather why we can trust the Bible. The Bible is a trustworthy document and it's not just... Um, for us to think about what will feed us and sort of make us happy. But this morning we are going to look at some reasons why we can trust the Bible, that we will be well-founded and secure in our trust of the Bible. So I want to, to kick off with three reasons why we can trust the Bible. This is not just an academic question, by the way. As Oxford Community Church. We are members, amongst other things, of the Evangelical Alliance. We are evangelicals. And what that means is that we take the Bible to be our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It's not just an interesting text for study, for the gaining of knowledge, but it's something that guides what we believe and what we do day in, day out. So this question matters, even though uh, it may require a little bit of reasoning to get there. That's not about removing ourselves from everyday life. It's putting in the underpinning and the foundations to make sure that we are confident in the Bible for its use in everyday life. What we have here are two-pound coins. Also, it seems actually what we have here is one-pound coin and a fake pound coin. One of them, the one on the right is not a real pound coin. The Bible, one reason that we can have confidence in the Bible and trust it, is that it has been weighed by the people of God and found to be good. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says that when prophets speak, the inspired word of God, their words must be weighed carefully by the people of God to find out whether it really is the word of God. So what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's that process that has gone on with the books of the Bible to prove that they are indeed from, if you like, God's royal mint. They're not fake or counterfeit in any way, but have been seen to be the genuine article, the real and true word of God. That is a function that God has given to his people to determine what is genuinely his word as we weigh that which is spoken by the Holy Spirit. And the books of the Bible are those texts which have been found by the whole people of God over centuries to be genuinely God's word. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Jews enjoyed a long series of prophets who came and spoke to them. 
the last being around 400 BC. The words of these prophets were written down, and that created a series of books. There are some other books that are history books too, but which were understood also, together with the books of the prophets, to be genuinely from God. After 400 BC, when the prophets ceased, God no longer gave his word through prophets to the people of Israel from that time. They compiled a list of all of the books that were deemed to have been God's word to them, and genuinely so. And there was agreement on all of the books that we now call the Old Testament. There was a little side debate over the book of Esther for a while. Uh, But at the end of the day, all of God's people agreed, the Jews agreed, after 400 BC, that the books that make up the Old Testament are indeed right. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, And he wrote from Artaxerxes, who was the emperor around 400 BC, and he's writing in the first century AD, from Artaxerxes to our own time, writes this Jewish historian, Josephus, the complete history has been written. That is, the story of what has happened over those further 400 years was written down. But he says this, it has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So once it got to about 400 BC, the Jewish people, of course, continued to produce books, but because the the succession of prophets had ended, they understood that the genuine word of God to them had ceased around 400 BC, and they fixed the Old Testament as those books from that period of their history which were proven to be genuinely from God's royal mint, as it were. Genuinely God's word. It's not that the other books were all necessarily rubbish, but they did not have that genuineness that the word of God God has. The early church went through a similar process. Except that for them, the role of the prophets in the Old Testament was replaced by the significance of the first apostles. They were very interested in which books had been written by apostles and had apostolic authority. As they went through a similar process, 90% of the books of the New Testament were agreed very quickly to be genuinely the word of God. A few of them were slower to be accepted, either because they'd not been widely available. Obviously, there's no internet in the Roman Empire. And even with their good roads, the expense of copying texts was great. And the challenge of distributing them was great. So some were distributed slowly and accepted slowly as a consequence. One book that was a particular challenge for people to work out, is this really the word of God, was the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews doesn't say who it's written by. And it took quite a while for everyone finally to agree that even though they weren't sure who had written it, that it too really is the word of God. In the end, the whole church agreed that the books we have in our New Testament are the right ones to be there. 
That's how it ended up. So to make it as clear as possible, out of all of that process of weighing, there are no books in the Bible that anyone questions anymore as to whether they are genuinely the word of God, that is, within the church. No one's asking those questions anymore. Those that are in are definitely in. And there are no books outside the Bible that have a serious claim to be in it. You might have heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or various other kinds of texts that were written. There were many documents, texts, letters written in that time, but none of them have a serious claim to be in the Bible. There's a lot of detail there that you can look up. Actually, in about nine months' time, we've invited a panel of New Testament experts to come and do a day seminar here on the subject of these other Gospels and what we make of them. So that's a little while to wait, but if you're interested, you can put it in your diary now. It's about the 20th, whatever the Saturday is that's nearest to the, to the end of January next year. We're going to look at that properly because we have confidence that that really is how it is. We can trust which books should be in there. So that's one thing. You're going to need to keep clicking for me, aren't you? Another thing is there are historical evidences. There have been a number of finds by archaeologists over the years that have confirmed biblical accounts. In John chapter 5, it talks about the pool of Bethesda. And it describes this pool having five covered colonnades And it describes a man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And for many years, as theologians read that text, they said, ah, this is obviously not history. They said it's obviously been made up to be symbolic. Because there is a number five and a number 38, and those are both meaningful for the Jews. Five was the number of books in the Torah... And 38 was the number of years that they wandered in the desert. So the whole story is a picture story, not not history, but a picture story of how people living within the old covenant of Moses could not find life, but then when Jesus came, he brought healing, and life could be found in him. And that way of looking at the text went on for a great many years until in 18... 88, someone found the pool and found that it had five covered colonnades. This is a picture of that archaeological site of the pool of Bethesda. And people had to eat their words a little bit. And to recognize that there had been an enthusiasm for dismissing the historical reliability of the accounts uh, over and above what was actually reasonable. There are many similar stories. The tunnel that is recorded in 2 Kings 20 of Hezekiah having dug to prepare Jerusalem for siege has been found. That was a long time ago in 1838. Until 1960, there was a genuine question as to whether Pontius Pilate, the archaeologists asked at least, as to whether Pontius Pilate really ever existed. Because it was a bit strange that no one had ever found a stone. If he was governor of Judea, you'd expect a lot of stones with his name inscribed to be littered around amongst the Roman ruins of that time. And none had been found. And people asked their questions and said, hmm, who is this person? Can we, can we trust 
the accounts of the Gospels. And then in 1961, some Italian archaeologists found a Roman stone which names Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea. So there have been archaeological finds to support the the, the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Also, there are other writers from the ancient world who are not necessarily friends of the people of God, but who cite facts of history which are also found in the scriptures. So that is to say they agree. Just taking one, for example, this historian Josephus that I mentioned a minute ago, he speaks of a famine which is also recorded in Acts 11. He mentions the names of a whole number of people that we find in the New Testament. Herod, Felix, Festus, Caiaphas, Ananias, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. He mentions all of these people. And of Jesus, he wrote this. He wrote, this is a Jewish historian and not a believer in Christ. There arose about this time a man, Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man. For he was a doer of marvellous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also many Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men among us, those who had at first loved him did not cease, for he appeared to them on the third day alive, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. And even now, the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. It's so clear, in speaking about Jesus, that actually some scholars say, well, clearly it's been forged by Christians later on to say what it says, because it's so clearly in support of the Bible that it can only be so if it's a later forgery. But there's no evidence that anyone tampered with Josephus' writings. It's a speculation that the idea of it having been tampered with is a speculation born of scepticism. It's motivated by the desire to disbelieve the Bible and not on the basis of any evidence. Another thing is that there are abundant early copies of the books of the Bible. Plato is someone widely recognised to have been a historical figure. Uh, The period in which he was supposed to have lived was about 400 BC. There are, if we count up all of the ancient manuscripts that have been discovered that record different ones of his works, there are seven, and the earliest is from 900 AD. So it's a gap of about... 1300 years from the time that he lived to the time that we have the oldest copies of texts concerning him. Homer's Iliad, it does rather better. It was written around 900 BC. Ellie, I'm assuming you'll correct me on any details I've got wrong later on. Ellie's a classicist and I'm speaking in rough approximations, so forgive me, Ellie. Um, there are over 600 older manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, but the oldest recorded one is from about 400 BC. It's still a 500-year gap. The New Testament is very, very different to that. Probably just because it was very, very popular, many, many copies were made. So it was written 
uh, largely in the second half of the first century and maybe a little bit after that, there are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts. And the earliest ones date back certainly as far as 120 AD. There's a fragment at Magdalen College here in the city, which is from one of the Gospels, which has been dated back as far as 60 AD on some, uh, on some dating techniques. So the gap there may be 50 or 60 years, but it could well be quite a lot less. And it's a stark difference to the manuscript evidence that there is for all of these other ancient texts, which are treated as properly revealing to us other historical characters. As far as the Old Testament goes, it used to be the case that the only complete copies that we had of some Old Testament books dated from about 900 AD, which is quite a big gap as well. And some people might have been slightly nervous or embarrassed about that fact in terms of the transmission of the text. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a copy of the Book of Isaiah, dated to about 125 BC, the time of its writing, And it was incredibly close, word for word, with the copy, the next oldest copy that had been known from a thousand years later, showing that although there'd been this gap, the transmission of the text over all of those years was remarkably reliable, surprisingly reliable, if you don't believe that God is in the process. So there are some evidences. There's the fact that the church has weighed the Bible over the years and found it to be genuinely the word of God. There are some encouragements to us from historical evidences, but we need to be honest and to say that these things alone do not amount to a proof. Uh, If you are a sceptic, the things that I have just said would probably leave you still sitting on the fence. Because, you know, the people of God have sometimes made mistakes. It has been known. And whilst I can cite some historical evidence that supports the Bible, most of you will know that there are other things that make for much less comfortable reading for those of us that want to uphold the Bible as the word of God. There are dates that archaeologists come up with that seem to suggest that, particularly with the Old Testament, that things didn't occur in quite the same centuries as the Bible seems to suggest. And so archaeology is not, a, is not an adequate support for our confidence in these texts. It won't do. It sometimes helps, and it sometimes hinders. So here's another thing. And I think this is really where our confidence in the text is really going to start to come from. The Bible speaks of itself as being alive. In Hebrews 4, it says the word of God is living and active. The Bible is not like any other collection of books. It is not just a work of art. It has a power that is not simply poetic because it works just as well when translated into other languages. It has a power 
Because God works through it. And that is our experience. I want to show you a video. It's about seven minutes long. Uh, It's the last part of a slightly longer video which tells the story of a man called Khalil from Egypt. Khalil was an Islamist terrorist who had gone into the desert to train to fight against Christians in the Middle East to defend Islam with violence. He had burned churches and attacked Christians, much like Saul in the New Testament. Uh, He was an intelligent man, and his commander, the emir who was commanding this group of guys, um, decided that as well as the violent attacks on Christians, they needed to open up an intellectual front of attack. And therefore, he gave to Khalil a copy of the Bible and said, you need to write a book disproving this book so that people will no longer be tempted to follow it. So he gave him a copy of the Bible so that he could expose its lies. Instead, Khalil started to see that this book was a good book, and he started to see that it contradicted the Quran, and started to see contradictions in the Quran, and ended up, out of all of that, really quite confused. And that's the point at which this video picks up. Good. It's a good story, isn't it? There are many, many more like it. It reminds us that, uh, that God is at work through the scriptures, that the Bible is not only evidenced to us with encouragement from church history and bits of archaeology, but God himself is at work through the Bible. And actually, the clincher in all of this is when we finally open it for ourselves and say, what does the Bible have to say about itself? We've not opened it yet this morning, but let's do so now and have a look at a few references which touch on the matter of what the Bible says about itself. So I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's saying there that God himself has breathed into the words that we find now on the page for us. In 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter writes that, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible understands that it is God himself speaking. Let's just compare Exodus 9, verse 16. I said I'm going to jump around a little bit, so if you're not confident with where all these books are, you might just want to listen rather than try to follow. If you can keep up, very good. Um, In Exodus 9, the Lord speaks, and in verse 16 it says, he says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then in Romans 9, and verse 17, it quotes that, and it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh... I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name 
might be proclaimed in all the earth. So you've got on the one hand, God himself speaking to Pharaoh, but Paul in writing the book of Romans is able to say the scripture is speaking to Pharaoh. The scripture speaking and God speaking are understood to be the same thing. Jesus saw that the Old Testament was inspired by the Spirit. It wasn't just that the Jews around him thought that, but Jesus confirmed that opinion. In Matthew 22 and verse 43, he's speaking to people who are questioning him, and he says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes a psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The details of what Jesus is arguing about are not relevant to us this morning, but the fact is that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament and saying, this was the Spirit speaking to David. Paul quoted both Old Testament and also Luke's Gospel in particular, so something from the New Testament as Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's talking about paying people, and it says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are are well, are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. The bit about the ox treading out the grain is from the Old Testament, But the worker deserving his wages does not appear in the Old Testament, but rather appears in Luke 10, where Jesus sends out people to work on his behalf and says, expect to be fed and given uh, drink whilst you travel because the worker is worth his wages. Paul is quoting from Luke's gospel and calling it scripture. When Paul wrote, he sometimes made it really clear that he understood himself to be writing with divine authority. In 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Paul understood that his letters were the Lord's command. I've jumped over one thing here, which is just to say that more broadly, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 295 times and quotes other Jewish books just once, which is in Jude 14. Or Jude might actually quote two different Jewish books. But the New Testament as a whole looks to the Old Testament as its authority for what God has said and not elsewhere. When Jude quotes other books, it's not with a sense that they are scripture, but simply part of the culture that he's writing to. And then Peter, also, to round this off, spoke of Paul. That's the wrong (coughs) reference, isn't it? It's actually 2 Peter 3 and verses uh, 14 to, uh, sorry, 15 and 16, where Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter here understood that what Paul was writing 
could be called scripture. So to sum up, when the Bible speaks of itself, when books of the Bible speak of other books of the Bible, they use this word scripture to describe them, understanding that scripture is a text that God himself has breathed, which is the very word of God. And the Bible understands itself to be that. It's not just that people later on have said, oh, this is quite good, we think this is the word of God. The Bible speaks of itself as being the word of God, which means that there's no room to sit on the fence. Uh, It's very tempting to sort of keep our options open and to say, well, it seems like God's kind of in it, but I'm not entirely sure. But the Bible itself closes off the option of saying, well, maybe some of it's God's word and maybe some of it's a bit less God's word. When the Bible says that it is scripture and scripture is God's own word to us, we're forced either to reject the whole thing and to say, well, none of it has that kind of authority, or to accept what the Bible says about itself as being the word of God. Uh, genuinely. So it's a bit like when Jesus came and said, I am God. That statement forces you to one of two polarized opinions about Jesus. You cannot, in the face of that statement from Jesus, that when he says, I am God, I am who I am, he says in John's gospel in the, well, we won't go into the details of that, but he claims to be God. When he says that, You can't say, oh, he's just a wise man. He's a good teacher. No, he's not. Anyone who says that they are God either is right or they're wrong. And if they're wrong, then they're either screwed up or, you know, deluded in some way or deceitful. You can't say, oh, it's kind of, he's kind of a good teacher. What he says about himself pushes you to one of two conclusions. Either you take him properly seriously as God, or you've got to throw it out. There isn't a halfway house. The same thing is true of the scriptures, where the scriptures say of themselves that they have the authority of God breathed by him. You can't say, oh, well, I enjoy reading it a bit. It does me a bit of good. I find something a bit useful in it. There's some wise words in here that are a bit helpful. It pushes you to one of two conclusions. Either the Bible really is solidly, genuinely the authoritative word of God, or else we just need to forget about it because its testimony about itself is wrong. Are you with me? And there's all kinds of temptation for us to end up in a more moderate position. The Bible is as it should be. As I said before, there are no books there that should not be there, and there are no books missing that should be there. And the reason for that is that God has been behind the whole process. It has an authority that cannot be taken on half-heartedly because it doesn't allow that, and that's because God set it up that way. He doesn't allow us to take his word half-heartedly. If we continue for a moment to just be open and honest we might recognise that there are some reasons why we struggle with the Bible. One of those is that it doesn't all seem to us to be relevant. I mean, why are so many pages taken up with food laws 
that we don't follow anymore. How can texts written in the Bronze Age speak to 21st century society? But again, the Bible speaks to this issue. The Bible acknowledges within itself, when it refers back to earlier parts of the Bible, later parts, referring back to earlier parts, acknowledge that there's an original text which meant what it did in its time, but which needs to be considered and interpreted for its significance at a later time. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. The story of Jonah is that God sends Jonah to Nineveh to say to them, you're all going to die unless you repent. Jonah says, no, I don't want to do that, because if I do that, they will repent, and then I'll look like a right plonker, and I just don't want to go there, broadly. Neat summary of the book of Jonah. But look what is chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us what the process had been in Jonah's mind. After they all repented, and God didn't bring the destruction that he'd threatened, chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, which was the other direction. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What Jonah is doing here is quoting from Exodus 34 and verse 6. In Exodus 34 and verse 6, God speaks to Moses saying, I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And Jonah has read that and understood what it meant in its own time, but has understood that the significance of that for him was that when he went and preached, God would be merciful. And his response to that was not the right response, but he responded to that and ran away in a different direction. How many of you are familiar with, I don't know if it's Mike Beaumont's invention or if it's just part of the great general sort of Christian world, the tummy method of, does that mean anything to anyone? Tummy method. There's a few people nodding. Some of you going, what are you talking about? Um, just to help us remember this, tummy stands for, there's a T, a U, an M, and then an MY. So there's four bits to the tummy method. And it's just to remind us that the T stands for them, the U for us, the M for me, and MY spells my, sort of my response. And it's just to say that when we read the Bible, it's perfectly appropriate for us to, to tease these things out and say, what did it mean for them, those who first read this? What did it mean for them in their context? And then further to ask, okay, In the light of that, what does it mean for us in this day and age? And then beyond that, to ask, what does it mean, what is its significance for me right here in this moment? And what will my response to that be? If a text seems irrelevant, let me tell you, it's not. But there is a process to go through in which you clarify what it meant then, because it was clearly meaningful To begin with, it wouldn't have been written down and recorded if it weren't meaningful. Having found out what the meaning was for them, the people that first read it, we can consider what it means for us, what it means for me, and what am I going to do about it. So there is a way forward, even with texts that don't seem relevant. Secondly, there are so many questions. I don't know what questions you have about 
the Bible, probably quite a few if you've read any of it. Uh, I just want to say very simply that where there are questions, there are almost always answers. It's pretty much guaranteed that when you ask a question of the scriptures, you're not the first person to have asked it. In fact, many people will have asked the same question before you, and almost certainly someone will have done some research and written a book about it. It's just how, it's just how it goes. Um, so the issue is not, oh, dearie me, there's all these questions. The issue is, how are you going to find the answers? I'd like to suggest that Wikipedia is not the best place to find the answers. The great uh, sort of depository of good answers to questions about the Bible that exists uh, is in a kind of book called A Commentary. I've got a few here. They vary in size from, well, this is a book that gives comment to four letters of the New Testament in that kind of depth. That's quite light reading and easygoing. If you have questions about these books, you could find some answers here. If that's not good enough, you could go to this one. This is about the same thickness and only covers two books. There's a bit more detail there. There's this one covers the same two books. It's a bit thicker. This is uh, the word biblical commentary on Colossians and Philemon. We've been doing Colossians recently, which is why I picked these ones up. If you want to get really intense, this is the New International Greek Testament commentary, which does the whole thing, but on the Greek text itself. There is no lack of scholarly research providing answers to the questions that you might have about the Bible. It's just a question of whether you want to go and find them or not. These books can be accessible to you. You may know someone who owns quite a few commentaries. You can pick them up secondhand fairly. Some of you can just afford to buy them. Um, And uh, I'm sure if you speak nicely to people who have access to these books that you can get hold of them. What you might also like to do is to go to King's Theological College and spend 10 months accessing the library and all of the lectures and all of the other stuff that's there so that you can find answers to many of the questions that you have. There are answers to the many questions that we have. A third reason why we struggle sometimes with the Bible is there are so many interpretations, aren't there? There's so many different things. It's like people read the same passage and they seem to say a million gazillion different things about it. And that can make us less confident and less trusting of the Bible as well. It's true that when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit comes and helps us to find what is significant in it for me today. And because I am different to you, and we're all different to each other, when the Holy Spirit helps us, the things that we find in the Scriptures are not always exactly the same. So, indeed, there are different interpretations. But though God is at work in us as we read the Bible... My personal, well, see, my personal experience in reading the Bible, I find certain meaning in there. My experience has not been weighed by the universal church over centuries and been found to have authority. It's like it's my experience, which is delightful to me, but that is different to saying what the text actually says. It's like with this tummy thing. What is it, in asking what did it mean to them, we're asking what does the text say in itself? Then there's what it means to me and my response. And if we've read a hundred different people's responses to the text, 
It's a real tragedy if that's made us sceptical about the text having any genuine meaning of its own. Because the text does have meaning of its own. And actually, most interpretation, most passages, most of the time, most commentators all agree what a passage really says. There is widespread agreement about most matters. I just want to finish by putting a different picture your way, which I hope will help. I want to suggest that there are three different frames for us to look at when we consider how we trust the Bible. The first frame is like a stained glass window. This is a frame that is full of detail to study and full of meaning. And first, in this picture, this is a picture of the text itself. Uh, This is the God-breathed scripture which has authority for us. There's another kind of a window, though. And it's the kind of window that you look through, and it reminds us that we do need to look behind the scripture to the history that lies behind it. If we're going to understand the text properly, it is hugely helpful to know something of the history and something of the culture. If we're reading, for example, that we are the salt of the earth, it's quite important for us to know what was salt used for then. It wasn't used then just as we use it now. And if we want to understand what it meant to those people then, then to know a bit of the history is going to help us. So there's the text itself to look at and to study. There's the value of looking through and beyond to the history and the culture that lies behind. And then the Bible tells us that it is also a mirror. In James chapter 1, it says that when we look at the scripture, it's a mirror in which we see ourselves, and that prompts a response in us. Uh, I just want to kind of wrap up, really, with a challenge. I'm aware that uh, I've shared a lot of information. It's the brief that I was given this morning was to seek to share information that would bolster our confidence in the scripture. I hope I've done that. I mean, I hope that some of the things that I've said have helped with that. It's not been a kind of touchy-feely message, and it may not have helped you uh, find God's answer to the problem that you may have come here with this morning. It's trying to put in some foundations and some principles. And with this picture in mind, I want to say that there are three different ways in which we can Uh, fail to take the scripture seriously. One is that we just don't bother with any of this at all. We just get caught up with watching, you know, TV instead or something, and we just don't find time even to bother with engaging with the Bible. That is a challenge uh, for all of us. But there are two other things that can also go on, even in our paying attention to the Bible. One of them is that we can get caught up in questions of the history and the culture and digging deeper. We feel like we're digging deeper theologically, but actually we might have our attention increasingly distracted away from the text itself and seeking answers for questions in historical studies, archaeology, that kind of thing. If you've got into reading lots of big, thick books in order to find answers for your soul then you may, you may need to stop that a little bit at the moment <laughs> and acknowledge that though God has been at work in history, it is the text of Scripture which has authority. That is the living and active 
word of God. And it's helpful for us to look behind, but the history doesn't have the life in it. It doesn't have the power of God in it to change us. It's the text of scripture that has that. And also, we can get a little bit absorbed sometimes in what it means for me. You know, like the person who was considering whether to divorce their spouse opened their Bible, it fell open at 2 Corinthians 7 where it says, come out and be separate. And ah, this is the word of the Lord to me. No, it's not. It's a very bad reading of scripture. Um, Our experiences can be quite absorbing. And when we come to the Bible simply to discover more about ourselves and to see ourselves developed, uh, we can also fail to pay attention to the text for what it is. I suspect that most of us, just because perhaps of the busyness of life or just paths chosen, have one way or another um, just not taken the Bible as seriously as we should have done. And actually as seriously if we'd wanted to as we could have done. We've not opened the Bible. We've not opened commentaries. I actually felt particularly this morning, just to say this, there are quite a few people here who are quite capable of learning New Testament Greek. And almost none of you have. (laughs) You could do, and it would enrich your study of the scriptures no end. There's a few people that ought to be learning Hebrew too, by the way. If you've got Greek under your belt, then there are other languages to take, well, it's Hebrew to take up in particular. It's like there's a seriousness of study of the scripture to find life and to find the answers that we need, which I just want to challenge us all to engage in. It's not easy, it's not touchy-feely, but there is tremendous treasure to be found if we'll do it. If it's been a while since you've studied the Bible, then study it afresh. Next week, we've got a guy coming from Kathmandu, Balakrishna Sharma, uh, who is principal of an Assemblies of God theological college there, who's going to be talking to us about how to get life from the Bible, which is intended to complement my talk this morning, which may or may not have brought you life. (laughs) It wasn't intended to be quite that, but I've explained why I've said what I have. And um, just be good to have a moment. And if you know that you've been treating the Bible less seriously than you should have been, there's a moment now in which you can just say sorry and resolve to do things differently. Amen.